Hey everybody, uh, my name is Brian. I'm one of the pastors here. Really glad to see you. Uh, before I make this announcement, does anybody DV, did anybody DVR the Broncos game? Does anybody want to know what happened? Yeah. They won. The Broncos won. So I was going to tell Andy to make that announcement, but then I figured everybody would be in a really good mood if I made the announcement. So the Broncos won. They hit a late field goal in overtime and uh, Tebow time again, right? We're going to the playoffs. Um, all right. Luke chapter 2, really glad uh, to see all of you tonight. Um, I try to be very clear in what it is that I'm going to teach on a weekly basis. I try to kind of come right out and say what it is. And tonight, I'm going to be even clearer. We're going to look at the story of Jesus' birth, the, the, the Christmas story, if you will. And, and the main idea that we're going to get to is this, okay? Very simple. The main idea we're going to get to is this, is that God gives hope to the outsider, Okay? God gives hope to the outsider. And by outsider, the, the way I would define that is uh, the, the people that culture looks at sort of marginalizes or thinks of as being uncool, those people who aren't part of the in crowd, okay? So God gives hope to those people. Now, all of you have experienced that no matter what stage of life that you're in, there are insiders and there are outsiders, right? So for me, uh, when, I, when I was in high school, there was insiders, there were outsiders, there was the cool crowd and the uncool crowd. And so uh, you're part of the insiders by uh, playing sports and partying and drinking and, um, you know, not trying very hard at school and, and all that sort of stuff. And you were an outsider by doing the opposite of those things. You know, you didn't own a North Face backpack. You didn't wear Birkenstock sandals. You were actually pretty well-behaved and, and you got along. Or, you know, maybe you were part of the marching band, which no offense to any of you who are in the marching band, but in, at least in my high school, maybe it was different for you. That wasn't the fast track to uh, the cool crowd. And what's been funny for me is you think you sort of outgrow those things, but then you move to Denver and it's exactly the, it's exactly the same way, right? I mean, there's insiders and there's outsiders. And so you become an insider by having an urban garden and by dressing like you just you know, stepped out of an REI catalog and owning a Subaru. And you're an outsider by doing the exact opposite of those things. You know, maybe not recycling, not composting. There are insiders and there are outsiders. And all of us have experienced that from elementary school to our workplaces today. And the, the, the main idea, I want to be very, very clear about this, the main idea that I want to get to is that God gives hope to those of you who are outsiders. Now, here's the reason why I'm so clear in coming out and saying that. It's because I want to anticipate one of two reactions. One, some of you are going to be psyched about this because you've never been an insider your entire life. You've been sort of funny, maybe sort of funny looking. I won't say who I think that is and isn't, but, but some of you have always experienced just naturally what it means to not be part of the cool crowd. You've been an outsider in school. You've been an outsider in your own home. You've been an outsider your entire life, all the way up to the career that you work now. You're not part of the cool crowd. But, but for some of you, but for some of you, when you think of insiders and outsiders, you've always been an insider. You've always been part of the cool crowd. You've always been part of the account. You're, you were the individual that everybody else hated because our parents growing up said, why can't you be more like him? Why can't you be as driven as he is? Why, why can't you date girls more like her? You were the type of person that was picked first for everything. From elementary school, you were picked first for dodgeball. And after you graduated from grad school, you were picked first to have a really great job. And so when I say that God gives hope to the outsider, well, what you think in response to that is that that's, that's nice, that sounds great, that's very exciting, but that's for somebody else. And before we even get started, here's what I want to do. If that's you, 
If you've always been part of the cool crowd, if you've always been an insider your entire life, I want to plead with you. I want to plead with you to know this, is that the way that insider and outsider is determined in junior high is very different than insider and outsider is determined in the kingdom of God. And while in junior high and in the workplace and in Denver, maybe really superficial things make you an insider, like the fact that you drive a single-speed bike around our neighborhood, the reality is is that God cares not about the superficial, but something much more substantial than that. And that's the condition of your heart in relation to him. And here's what the scriptures teach about that. Is, is that while there are natural insiders and outsiders in school, while there are natural insiders and outsiders in our workplaces, while there's natural insiders and outsiders in the city of Denver, what the scriptures teach, what the Bible teaches, what Jesus taught, is that there are no natural insiders when it comes to the kingdom of God. There's nobody who is a natural insider, but instead, Instead, the condition of our hearts leads us to being outsiders of God. And so as we look at this text and as we look at how God gives hope to the outsider through the Christmas story, my plea with you is you don't think this is for somebody else, but you recognize that this is for every single one of us in this room. Okay? God gives us hope to the outsider like me and like you. And let's look at the story and let's see how this is true. Let's look at chapter 2, starting in verse 1. I know some of you came in late, so if you need a Bible, we have them on these tables around here. Um, So go ahead and grab one if you want to follow along. Chapter 2. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria, and all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. Okay, let's pause there. That's a lot of information. So here's what happened. is is Mary and Joseph. Mary is very, very pregnant now. Some translations even say she was great with child. She is unbelievably pregnant. Mary and Joseph have the responsibility to go and be registered because the area of the world that they lived in was owned and occupied by Romans. And so every once in a while, they would do a census. They would do a census so they would know, you know, how many people they have, so they would know who to tax, as well as they would have some idea of how many men they had in each region to prevent uprisings and things like that. And so Mary, very pregnant Mary and Joseph make an 80-mile trek from, from Nazareth down to Bethlehem to be registered. And, and, and we see how pregnant she is because she gets ready to give birth in verse 6. Look at this. It says, And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. So this is, we've, for weeks, for a couple of weeks now, we've been talking about how hope is here, how God has promised the coming of a redeemer through the birth of a little boy. And, and the thousands of years of anticipation has been fulfilled in these two verses. And if I'm just transparent, the, the story of Jesus being born is remarkably unremarkable, isn't it? I mean, it's just, just two verses. Like, she gave birth, she couldn't find a place to give him birth, so, so she gave birth to him basically in a barn. It's remarkably unremarkable, especially, you know, some of you grew up in church or you're familiar with Christmas pageants or nativity scenes. I mean, usually those things are huge productions, right? And if you've ever seen them in churches, you know, what happens is Mary is like, you know, 
frantically knocking from door to door throughout all of Bethlehem, trying to find a place. And then when she can't find a place to give birth to her son, Jesus, she breaks into this very dramatic solo. You know, the audience is riveted. They give up and they give a standing ovation. You know, there's, you know, then when she comes to give birth in this barn, there's all sorts of exotic animals. You know, there's elephants and there's tigers and there's parrots. I mean, it's unbelievably dramatic. Actually, I don't know if you saw this, but last year a church in Florida uh, tried to reenact a Christmas pageant and they use a live camel. And I don't know if you saw this. This went viral on YouTube. But I guess because, you know, camels' natural environment isn't, you know, conducive towards them walking down narrow church aisles, the camel tripped and fell into the audience. I'm not kidding. This is on YouTube. You could go look it up now. And so what happens is, you know, we read this story. It seems remarkably unremarkable. And then when we do sort of the replay of the production of what happens here, we turn into this big, dramatic event. Now, now, who can blame us, right? Because in our culture, when, when somebody of substance, when somebody of importance is born, we make a really big deal out of it, right? Like two weeks ago, I went and saw The Lion King. And in The Lion King, what Simba's born, what happens? Elton John breaks into the circle of life, and it is rocking in there, right? That's what happens when a king is born. Or for those of you who watch MTV like I occasionally do, you know from the Video Music Awards this past year that Beyonce and Jay-Z announced they were having a baby on the Video Music Awards by Beyonce was performing, dropped her microphone, rubbed her baby bump, and like the crowd went crazy. Actually, the entire world went crazy to the point that it broke the world record of most tweets per second, over 9,000 tweets per second about Beyonce having a baby. That's what happens when somebody important is going to be born. And then we come and we read these two verses. Mary gives birth in a barn a couple, to a couple of blue-collar parents, and they don't even have a crib for him. They don't even have a crib to the point that they have to lay him in a feeding trough. This is the promised one. This is the one, the Son of God, that we've waited thousands of years for, and this is the way it goes down. It doesn't make any sense. And it's almost like when we replay it, it's like we have to be a little bit, you know, embarrassed for God. Like he didn't really think this through and didn't really know when, you know, Mary was going to go into labor. He forgot to make reservations at the inn, sort of scrambled, worked something out of the barn, and used a feeding trough for Jesus' crib. So here's the thing. This is the sovereign God of the universe who spoke everything into existence out of nothing, made no mistake with this. This was absolutely, absolutely intentional the way this went down. And here's what God is doing in this moment. He is making a declaration. That, that he's saying that I am not the God uh, of the king. I am not the God of the great politician. I am not the God of the prestigious alone. But instead, I am the God of the humble. I am the God who identifies with the outsider. I am the God who comes to the height of human brokenness. Can you imagine a scenario more frightening if you're a woman or if you're a man that you have a loved one go into labor in a barn, that God chooses this method to bring his son who will redeem all of humanity into existence and into the world through identifying as an outsider. See, what's happening in this moment is that God is making a declaration saying that, that while most of us think that in order for you to clean up your life, in order, you have to have your entire life together if you want to be loved by me and blessed by me. If you want to know me, you have to have your entire life together. I mean, I have conversations with, with people like that all the time. I have conversations with people who, who aren't followers of Jesus and they grew up in church, but maybe you don't come anymore. And they say things like, you know, I really want to get back in church. I'm getting ready to get married. We're about to have kids. And 
once I quit the drinking, once I quit the drugs, once I quit, once I clean up my life, I'll finally come back to God. I, I talk to people in the church who, who struggle with chronic sin. And if this has ever been you, and there's been something you really, really don't want to do, but you find yourself getting into a pattern of doing again and again and again, you know what happens is a cycle where you, you sort of psych yourself up to say, I'm not going to do this again. And then you do it. And then you're so ashamed and riddled with guilt that you don't even feel like you can pray. It's almost like you need a spiritual detox period before you can come to the church or even to the throne of grace again. And what Jesus is saying is instead of you having to clean up your life, instead of you having to have your entire act together, instead of you having to have the perfect religious resume before you can come to me, I will come to you in the midst of your brokenness and messy life. I will enter the story of humanity through being born in a barn. He's saying, I don't love you because you're lovable. I love you in spite of the fact that you're unlovely. And despite the fact I could have been born in a palace, I chose to be born in a barn. And it's a statement of the type of God that I am and the type of people I came to save and redeem. Now the story continues. And I want you to hold this in mind and recognize that what the Bible's going to do here is then give you a story of what's happening simultaneous to this. It's like an episode of Seinfeld. I actually told Andy this this week. If I, if I didn't watch TV, I don't know what I would say for half of my sermons. It's like an episode of Seinfeld, you know, where you're like watching it, and then all of a sudden some funny music happens, and it's a scene happening at the exact same time. So verse 8, this is happening at the exact same time or just after this. And in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. Now, if you thought God was acting kind of funny leading up to this, in the fact that he had his son, the promised one, born in a barn, this is where the story gets even weirder. Because he not only chooses to have his son be born in a barn, but he also chooses to have the first people that he tells about it be shepherds. Now, here's what you need to know about shepherds. Shepherds were the biggest cultural outsiders that you could really think of at that time. They, they were weird because, I mean, their profession entailed them spending all their time with livestock in the middle of nowhere, okay? They, they, they were viewed as being irreligious and ungodly because the nature of their profession wouldn't let them go to the temple where they felt like you could be close and, and be known by God. They were even viewed as being like some of the shadiest characters to the point that their testimony couldn't even be offered in court. It wasn't trusted. A shepherd's testimony wasn't trusted in court. And so you have to ask yourself, like, what is it that God is up to? What, what is it that God is up to that he not just had his son born in a barn, but, but also he has the first people he tells about it, people who are viewed as being so untrustworthy and so shady by the culture that they can't even offer testimony in court. What is he up to? See, again, this is no accident, the way this is going down. It didn't just happen by circumstance. But instead, what God is doing is making a second, de second declaration, saying that my son is born in a barn because I identify with the outsider. And the shepherds are the first people I will reach out to because I will not just identify with the cultural outsider, but I will use the cultural outsider to be the one who is used first for my mission to go forward and to be used for my glory. I will not just identify, but I will use the outsider as well. And it's not saying, don't, don't hear me the wrong way. I'm not saying that God couldn't have used a king. He couldn't have used a famous politician. He couldn't use a celebrity. He couldn't have used an athlete. But he chose to use the humblest of the humble. Probably because, 
probably because he knew in the way that they would respond, that this would be unbelievably overwhelming news, and the shepherds would respond in the way they did. I mean, if anybody had to, nobody had to be, no shepherd had to be convinced that they were an outsider because they were so mocked by the culture. They were the humblest of the humble. It actually reminds me, Andy and I, we were having a conversation with a guy who does ministry in downtown at an organization called Open Door, and they do work with, I mean, the humblest of the humble, the least of these in our city. Uh, they do work with the homeless. They do hope with the marginalized. They do hope. They do work with the uh, disabled. And we were having lunch over at Welton Street Cafe, and he's telling us stories. He's telling this guy's telling us stories about overdoses. He's telling us stories about relapses. He's telling us stories about getting phone calls at three in the morning. And sort of after fifteen of these things, I can't remember if it was Andy or I said something along the lines of, "Like I just don't know how you." Like, how you do it? I, I, don't, I don't know how you do that, like, seven days a week. How do, you, how do you do that? And the guy turned back to us, and he said, you know, it's interesting. I was having a conversation with a friend of mine who's a pastor in the suburbs of Denver a few weeks ago, and we were talking about our ministries, and, you know, he pastors a mostly white church, and everybody in there makes a whole lot of money and owns three cars, and they, you know, have vacation homes in the mountains. And this guy who pastors his church turned to me, and he said, you know, I, I, don't, know how you, I don't know how you do it. And he said, you know how I responded to him? I said, I don't know how you do it. I don't know how you do it, because at least the people I work with on a day-in, day-out basis know that they're messed up, jacked up, and in desperate need of God's grace. And God can use somebody like that. But the people you work with on a day-in, day-out basis do whatever it takes, do whatever it takes to cover up their brokenness with their wealth, with their prosperity, with their education, and with their jobs. It's like, I love my ministry context. I love it. Of course, Andy and I felt a little guilty for asking that question. I think that was his roundabout way of saying, like, you idiot, don't, don't ask that question. You know, the reality is, is the shepherds knew. The shepherds knew that they were broken, that they were messed up, and they could be used by God. See, their outward reputation in the city was a perfect reflection of their inward condition when it came to their, when it came to their relationship with who God is. And, and because they were so aware of that, because they recognized they were not just a cultural outsider, but a spiritual outsider as well, they were so eager, they were so eager to receive God's grace and to be used in a mighty way for his mission and to go tell other people about the great things that God has done. See, my fear for our church, if we're one or the other, we, we fall to the extreme of being the mostly white uh, church full of people who are well-educated and have good jobs. And my fear for you, even though none of those things are intrinsically bad, is that you will use those things. You will do whatever it takes to cover up the reality of your spiritual condition, of the fact that you are a spiritual outsider apart from Christ when in your relationship with who God is. My fear for you is, is for those of you who are unbelievably educated. My fear is that you're educated beyond your humility, and you get to the point where you think about all that you've learned, and when you think about you know, that maybe God has spoken through this book over the past th- several thousand years about the way you should conduct your life, you can come up with all sorts of brilliant, intellectual, philosophical arguments about why this doesn't apply, because you are so smart and you have your entire life together. My fear for you, for those of you who, have, who earn a good living, there's nothing wrong with making a good living. There's nothing wrong with making a whole lot of money. My, my fear, though, 
is that you use that to mask your brokenness. And you use it, you know, you hear us talk about how God is the fountain and source of all joy. And you think to yourself, like, what are you talking about? I make a good living. I work the hours I want to work. I enjoy the people I work with. I enjoy the lifestyle I can provide for myself. What are you talking about? What are you talking about? And those good things that God has blessed you with, an education, money, the things that have made you insiders in this city, you, you are going to use to continually manipulate your spiritual isolation. What you need to understand is that God comes for the shepherd. God comes for the shepherd because the shepherd's the type of person that doesn't hear about the grace of God and think, man, that's going to be a major interruption to my life. That's going to be a major interruption to the lifestyle I want to live. I want to do my own thing. The shepherd looks at it as good news. That's the type of person that God uses. And for those of you who who aren't culturally shepherds in our city, my fear for you is that you will use those things that give you prestige to mask your spiritual condition. Now, the, the angels don't just come speaking to people, but they actually come with a message, and they say this in verse 10. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. That, that word good news means gospel. Like, I come to preach to you the gospel. So we say the gospel a lot, and the angels are coming to preach the gospel to all people. And they say this in verse 11. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior. A Savior. Un, un, unto this day, the good news is, is that a Savior has been born. And for us as human beings, our greatest need uh, isn't, you know, self-improvement. It's not to be, you know, saved from political idiots. It's not, it's to be saved from ourselves. And that God, through Christ, has provided a Savior for you and for me. He says, not just a Savior, a Savior who is Christ. Christ, Christ meant Messiah. So, so the angels are delivering the good news of saying that the one you have waited for for thousands of years has now come. The one who would be born to bring healing and restoration to this broken and jacked up world. Not just a Savior, not just Christ, but the Lord. That God has sent Christ not just to save us from something, but to save us into a life of obedience, the loving following and knowing him. And while our entire lives have been marked by us functioning as Lord of our own lives, what he's saying is we have been given the opportunity to have a new Lord who is after our joy in a way we can never wrap our minds around. The good news, the gospel is that we have been provided a Savior, Christ, and Lord. And they continue in verse 12, and this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. I would say probably of this entire story, which, you know, if you've even watched Charlie Brown Christmas and, you're, you know, this is your first time in church for a long time, you're somewhat familiar with this story. I, I would say that of all the verses in this story, verse 14 is probably the most often abused. Because what happens is you go into church and they talk about how, you know, there's peace among those with whom he is pleased. And some guy gets up and reads that and waxes eloquent about how this means that there will now be peace in the Middle East, how there will now be peace between Republicans and Democrats. We'll finally understand who God is. And that's not the primary thing that it's getting at. What what the angels are saying is not primarily there will be peace between man and man, but there's, there's now the opportunity for peace among God and man. 
There's now the opportunity for peace between God and man. I know that may be a little bit offsetting, but what you need to understand is what the Bible describes our spiritual condition as, as a spiritual outsider. It's not that we're just ambivalent, it's that we're enemies. It's that we're enemies. Paul writes about this in Romans chapter 5. He says that we are enemies of God. We are at war with God. And God, even though he has all the power, even though he's entirely in the right, invades enemy-occupied territory through becoming man to offer peace. To offer peace. And what the angels are saying is even though God had all the power, even though God was entirely in the right, entirely by his grace and through his love, he has invaded enemy-occupied territory to make himself known. And the opportunity now is by grace through, by grace through faith for the opportunity for there to be peace in your life and mine through what the work of what Christ has done. C.S. Lewis, we're going to bring a quote up for you to, to even see this. Here's what Lewis said. God has landed on this enemy-occupied world in human form, and the perfect surrender and humiliation was undergone by Christ. Perfect because he was God, surrender and humiliation because he was man. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who I know has a funny name, but we taught about a few weeks ago. He, he was a guy who was one of the greatest minds of the 20th century, and he was a theologian in Germany, and he was actually in prison and thrown into a concentration camp for opposing Hitler's Nazi regime. He, he used his time in prison to reflect on this scene, and here's what he wrote. He said, a prison cell in which one waits, hopes, and is completely dependent on the fact that the door of freedom has to be offered, has to be opened from the outside, is not a bad picture of Advent. See, what's being said here, what's being said here is that the height of humility has taken place, is that God has invaded this enemy-occupied territory by grace, is offered the opportunity for peace through the work of Christ. And he comes, and he comes to us, not us to him, but he comes to us, comes to us fully man so that we can identify with him, fully God so that we can be saved by him. Fully man so that we can identify with him. Fully God so that we can be saved by him. And it's in this the angels proclaim that hope is here. And it's through his work that we get transferred from being outsiders to insiders. Now the story's not over. The story's not over. And in verse 15, when the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste, which means they just went quickly and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. When they, uh, and when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. Verse 18. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. I mean, it's just a funny scene. It's like, here are the least likely people to succeed, the least likely people to be in this scene. It's like, you know, you flip to the back of your yearbook and you see, like, the, the people who were voted least likely to succeed in Jerusalem High School. Like, these would have been them. Mary, Joseph, shepherds. Blue-collar parents struggling to make ends meet. Shepherds who were, who were viewed as being so irreligious that they couldn't even go into the temple. The ultimate cultural outsiders being brought and united to God through the birth of his son. And Mary does this. She says this in verse 19. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. I mean, that's really the response, right? I mean, that's the response. Mary treasured and she pondered. She treasured and she pondered. This, this wasn't just something she 
cognitively was aware of. This wasn't just something that was just sort of happening that she would tell her friends about. She treasured it. She treasured it and made it her own. And she said, this is, the, this, this is what my life was meant to be given to. And she, and she pondered it. She, she gave herself to meditating on the great work that God had done in her life and that she was fortunate to be witness to. That's the natural response to us in this story. When we hear that God gives hope to the outsider. It's not just to cognitively believe it. It's not just to participate in it because that's what good Americans do. We just sort of celebrate the Christmas story and decorate and give gifts and things like that. But it's to treasure and to ponder. And so as we wrap up, that's what I want to challenge every single one of you to do. If you're you're a follower of Jesus, I want to challenge you to treasure and ponder. Not just once, but again and again and again on a day-in and day-out basis. And as we get ready to sing, my, my encouragement to you is a treasure and ponder. What you sing is a song of victory, of what God has done for you, that, that he's done something for you, of sending his son not just to be born, but to grow into a man who lived the life you should have lived, who died the death that we should have died, and conquered the grave. And in his conquering of the grave, conquered our greatest enemies of Satan, sin, and death. And his victory is your victory by grace through faith. And when you sing, when you sing, you sing a song of victory. Not because of what you've done, because of what Jesus has done on your behalf, transforming you from being an outsider to an insider to God. I want to challenge you. I want to challenge you, if you're not a follower of Jesus, that as we get ready to sing now, that this would be an opportunity for you to make a time of commitment. You don't have to go anywhere. You don't have to do anything. It's between you and God. But what I would challenge you to do is to make a commitment. You would make this story, and you would make Jesus' work, your work, not by doing anything, not by, not by doing anything for God, but simply receiving. By simply receiving. Not performing, but simply receiving. And letting the song that you are getting ready to sing to be a song of celebration. My, my challenge to you, if, if ne- neither of those options appeal to you, which we have people every single week who check out our church, who, who aren't followers of Jesus, they just want to come and see what we do, and that's totally fine. You're totally welcome here. My, my challenge would be to you if, you, if you're not going to treasure, at least ponder, okay? At least ponder and think about it, and think about the fact that if Jesus is who he says he is, if this story really did happen, this story that has transformed lives for 2,000 years, and as, as a result, these men and women sit in this room as a testimony to the fact that this story is true and changed our lives. My challenge to you would be to ponder this and ask yourself, could this be true? And if it is, the response, the natural response, is to bend your knee in obedience. Treasure and ponder. We will sing a song of victory. We will sing a song of celebration. And we will celebrate. We will celebrate that even though none of us were natural insiders, God, by his grace, chose us, saved us, and made us insiders in his kingdom. I'm going to pray. God, we thank you so much for your grace. We thank you so much that you've loved us. We thank you so much that you've saved us. We thank you so much that you've pursued us. None of us deserved it. None of us were entitled to it, but, but you have chosen to love us anyways. And even though you could have been born in a palace, you were born in a barn. And even though you, you could set things up to the point that we have to be lovely for you to love us, you love us even though we're unlovable. And so God, let that be our song of celebration. Let that be our song of victory. And let that change everything in our lives. We thank you for this time. We ask that you continue to bless it. We ask all these things in the powerful name of Jesus. Amen.